Well, hey there, and welcome back to the Vineyard Church Podcast. Today, Julie continues the story of Joseph and the heritage that we have in his family line, that when we become followers of Jesus, when we love God and proclaim Jesus as not only our Savior, but our Lord, we become spiritual children of Israel. Here's Julie. Well, good morning, everyone. Today, we're meeting live as a church outside at the waterfront. But since you're watching here, I wanted to let you know, if you are a note taker, we have online notes for you. You can find those on the app and on the website. And that is thanks to Vicki Smith, our communications director. So those are there for you. Well, we have been on a journey through the book of Genesis for the past like 14 months or so, and just three more weeks um, is what we have, and then we're going to be on the other side of this book and on the other side of considering so many lives that are captured on these pages. And um, for a few weeks, we've been looking at the life of a man named Joseph. Now, uh, if you don't know much about him, you can read about him in Genesis. I want to encourage you to do that. And you can go back and listen to or watch the sermons from the last few weeks, and you're going to get a lot of insight into his life. But today we're going to pick up where we left off in Genesis 47. Now, the first part of these verses we're going to see today are just really a lot of practical wisdom about how to lead really wherever you might lead, even in your household or your neighborhood, your community. And then the second part is going to offer some more theological kind of insight. And all of this today is in the context of a severe famine. Now, when we think of a famine, we usually think of a time when there's no food, and this is true. However, a famine can also be defined as not only a time of hunger, but as a time of languishing or to live or be in a state of depression or decreasing vitality. And when we consider this, the truth is we all have seasons of famine in our lives. So for some of us, we've experienced literal hunger, not being sure where our next meal might come from. For some of you, maybe you've experienced financial famine. You're not sure how you're going to pay the bills or just buy the necessities you need. Or maybe you've had a famine brought on by sickness or an injury where you really have lost vitality. You've been depleted. You have to give up kind of the regular way you've been living or the life you've had before. For some of us, we might know what it's like to live in a famine of peace or of hope. If you're, if you're you know, struggling with loneliness or you've had a loss, most of us at some point or another will experience a relational famine. You know, this can be a time of physical separation in a significant relationship. It can be broken trust. Someone could move away. Someone passes away. And all of that brings kind of a famine in relationship. We can even have a spiritual famine where we feel, we're, we feel far from God for a certain period of time. But the bottom line is if we live long enough, We will all experience some time or some type of a famine. And during these seasons, we have a choice. We can can respond to this famine, and we can choose to live either according to the famine, or we can live according to faith. Now, as we head into Genesis 47, we need a little bit of backstory. So back in Genesis 41, we saw Joseph interpret a dream that Pharaoh had, and Pharaoh was the leader of the entire land of Egypt. And through the dream, God reveals to Joseph that Egypt is going to have seven years of extreme bounty, and then there would be this devastating famine for seven years. Now, at the time, Pharaoh, who is regarded as like a god in Egypt, he he makes Joseph second in command. He puts Joseph in charge of figuring out what to do, how to do it, and then managing the plan for the next 14 years. And sure enough, 
Egypt enjoys seven years of this extreme bounty, and Joseph starts to work his plan. He stores 20% of what was grown during those years. He builds these storehouses, and we're told it was so much that Joseph quit trying to keep track of it. Then these years end, and this famine sets in. And then last week, we heard that Joseph's dad, Jacob, and all of Joseph's brothers, his entire extended family, they've come from Egypt to Canaan because the famine's so bad, and they heard that there's food in Egypt. Now, because of Joseph's great favor with Pharaoh, Joseph is able to set his family up when they get there. And remember, we ended last week with these verses, uh, Genesis 47, 11, and 12. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh had directed. So Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their children. So in the middle of this famine, as foreigners, they have the best that Egypt has to offer. But right after this, we read in verse 13, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Now, now that these uh, seven uh, years of famine are underway, Joseph begins to work on the second part of his 14-year plan, right? And what we're going to see is that Joseph is a benevolent leader. And just to clarify, a benevolent leader is someone who, while they have authority, they choose to lead in such a way that they look to the best interest of those that they're leading, even if it's to their own detriment at times, even if it costs them something. I was trying to think of a, of a truly benevolent governmental leader in my lifetime, and I could not think of one. But, you know, our God is a benevolent God. In the last few weeks, Chris has pointed out in Romans 8 where we're told that for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, his response is our God, our leader, is to work all things together for our good. And we see this, the epitome really of this in Jesus, when he gives his life for his followers. And here's a truth that we're going to see, that when we lead by following God, we are positioned to be a benevolent leader. And we're going to see that in numerous ways, Joseph practices being a benevolent leader. So we go on in verse 14, and it says this, Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph, and he gave, uh, or I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats their cattle and donkeys, and he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. So Joseph has sold food to the Egyptians until all their money and then all of their life, livestock has been sold to him. So some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, this doesn't sound very benevolent, right? But Joseph had that food all stored up, right? There's this famine. Why wouldn't he just give them free food? Why wouldn't he start a free food program? Well, sometimes free is good, but sometimes it leads to a lot of waste. I mean, there are crazy statistics about that today in our world. But not only this, Joseph knew he had seven years to get through. But even more significant than this, 
These Egyptians were people who had just enjoyed seven years of abundance, right? So when year eight came and the famine set in, these are people who had homes and wealth and family and livestock and and land. And one more little bit of context here is that there was a strong value on someone's ability to provide for their family and for their community, and dignity was tied to this. So a free food program would have diminished their dignity, their their value. A free handout to these people would have been condescending. It would have been like Joseph telling them, you are not able, I am, and I'm better than you, so just let me take care of everybody. So instead, the people offer him something of value, and in exchange, Joseph gives them what they need and maintains their dignity. And what we see here is wise leadership. Joseph recognizes their desperation And he offers a solution that maintains their dignity. But what about when the people's money was all gone, right? And then he has them pay with their livestock. Like, was this benevolent? Was this just taken a little too far? Well, this was still honoring their dignity in the same way. But in addition, these were people in an agricultural community. Now, most of us have not grown up in that. We don't really live in that. But if you've ever raised any livestock, you know that it's not only work, but it's an investment, and it's maintenance. When you acquire animals, you have to provide nourishing food and water and shelter. You have to tend to their needs if they're injured, if they get sick. There's cost of upkeep and infrastructure. And if you're in a famine and the resources to main livestock are gone, what are you going to do? Like, they're not like a mower or a tractor. You can, like, stick it in the garage or barn and be like, well, I'll get it out in six months or seven years or whatever, right? you got, you got to take care of it. There's an expense involved. So when Joseph offers to buy these animals from the people, he's actually offering to take a burden off their shoulders in this crisis and in return meet their need. He was actually trading them food for something of theirs that would then cost him to take care of. And we see this as generous leadership. Joseph chooses to lead with benevolence by taking on the people's burden. But the famine isn't over. It goes on. And in verse 18, we read this. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money's gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. And Joseph says nothing. Then they go on, buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them, and the land became Pharaoh's. Now notice, after their money is gone, their livestock is gone, Joseph still isn't offering handouts. But there's a shift here that's really important. The people come to Joseph for the third time asking for his help, but this time Joseph didn't suggest the solution. He let the people assess their situation and come up with a solution. Again, recognizing their desperation, yet offering whatever little bit of dignity he still could that they would have left. And you know, it made me think of this. If the, for those of you who are parents or, or grandparents and, or you've worked with kids maybe, Have you ever had a time when there was a kid who came to you and really wanted something and you really wanted to give it to him, but you're like, man, I just want to give it to him, but I think that they should have some skin in the game. I just think they should, you know, work for it or pay for it, but maybe they're like seven and they haven't nailed down a job yet. And so you're like, well, so you turn to him and you say, well, what do you think would be a fair trade? What what do you think? 
And so they come up with like, well, I'll do the dishes or I'll, 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 I'll wash the windows or whatever. And they come up with something they'll do in exchange for what they want you to give them. And I don't know about you, but like at least with our kids, when they were doing a job they came up with, they did that job way more cheerfully, way better than if we were just like, hey, here's a list of chores you got to do. And this is kind of, in essence, what happens here. Since the people created the solution, the people were willing to live with that solution, especially when it was actually very difficult. And so these people now, with no money, no livestock, in the midst of a famine, they had land that was, A, not producing, B, no longer really of much value at this time. So they decide, we're going to offer this to Joseph and see if he'll take it for what we need. Now, Joseph is gaining for Pharaoh, of course. He's piling this stuff up. But he's also further assuming the people's current burden. He's just taken on management and responsibility for land in this desolate state. But we continue in verse 21, and we read this really kind of oddly written verse. In a lot of translations, it says this, And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Now this phrase, reduced the people to servitude, in Hebrew and other translations we read, is better translated, moved them into the cities. And this is because, in a sense, um, I'm sorry, this makes sense, because back in Genesis 41, we read that the cities were where Joseph had all the food reserves stored in his big storehouses. And again, we see benevolence demonstrated. Moving all the people into the city would not have been easy, it would not have been cheap, but it would have been in their best interest for them at the time. It gets them close to the food. They didn't have to travel long distances back and forth, which was safer to avoid thieves and hijacking. The cost of travel goes down. Food picked up is fresher. There's less waste. And so again, Joseph is leading with benevolence by serving the people, by doing what's best for them. Now, some of you are going, yeah, but Joseph is gaining. He's like amassing everything, all this wealth. It's really good for him too. And I'd say, you know what, first of all, benevolence doesn't mean that it can't be good for everyone involved, okay? If you can lead in a way that benefits those you lead and the one you work for, that's like a home run. And I want to point something else out. Over and over we read, it was Pharaoh who was gaining, not Joseph. Remember, Joseph has Egyptian power, he has Egyptian wealth, but all of it is on loan from Pharaoh. All of it could be gone in an instant. And when we look at Joseph's life, even with all his influence and all his power being tied to Pharaoh, Joseph consistently makes clear God was still his God. He was still a steward, a manager of what God had enabled him to do in a nation where he was still living as a foreigner. You know, when, when someone becomes a Christian, our position in this world becomes a lot like Joseph's. God becomes our father. He's the most powerful person. And this world is no longer our final home. We become like foreigners in this world, and we look forward to our home in heaven with God one day. Paul reminds us of this in, in Philippians 3, 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so like Joseph, we're living in this foreign land, stewarding the abilities, the positions, the jobs, the resources, the talents that we've been entrusted with. And I want to ask you to think about something for a minute. I want you to think about how different would your life look if you considered all you have in this life, not as yours, but on loan to you from God? Like, what if you really believe that all your stuff belongs to him? 
Now, maybe God wouldn't want all your stuff. I mean, I know my husband would say God wouldn't want all my stuff. But really, what if you lived as a manager, as a steward, instead of an owner? How different would your life look? Well, the, the account goes on, and the final action of Joseph takes, takes place for the famine here. In verse 23, it says, Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. When the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for your fields, as food for yourselves and your households and your children. So Joseph doesn't just give them food for their land and their labor. He makes a plan for their future success. He gives them seed so they can plant again. And he says, you get to keep 80% of whatever you can do with this. Give Pharaoh 20. Now remember, there had been a 20% tax during those incredible seven years of abundance for all that backstock storage. So this isn't like a new idea for these people. And additionally, in the world at that time, historians tell us that the tax on grain was anywhere from 40% on up to 60. So 20 would have been like incredibly good. It would have been generous, maybe even considered benevolent, right? I mean, if you think about our system today in our country, and we live in the freest nation on earth, right? Yet if you add up all of our different taxes, you know, sales tax, income tax, real property tax, um, real estate tax, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Many of us would be thrilled, right, at a 20% flat tax rate. And what Joseph puts in place here is simple and it's smart and it incentivizes work. Joseph didn't penalize you if you were successful. He said, you get 80% no matter what. In our country, the more money we make, the more taxes we pay. I mean, it kind of de-incentivizes working more. Sometimes it causes some people who I know it to say, I'd love to work more, but no, I can't work more because I'll make just enough more that the government will take most of it in the end. Now, if that doesn't resonate with you, that's okay. Listen to how the people responded to Joseph at this final act as their manager during this famine. Here's what they say in verse 25. You have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be and bondage to Pharaoh. And what we see here is provisional leadership. Joseph chooses to leave with benevolence, planning for future provision. However, even with this benevolent leader, for these Egyptians, this has been an extreme situation. In reality, yes, their lives were saved. But the famine, it left them completely famished of their prior lives, probably of their hopes, of their dreams. They had nothing from their life before left. And while all this has been happening with the Egyptians, something else was going on. It's kind of like in a TV show or movie where meanwhile pops up on the screen. In verse 27, we hear what's been happening with Joseph's family. So meanwhile, it says, Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there. They were fruitful And they increased greatly in number. Joseph's family was living through this famine, the same famine as the Egyptians, but they weren't famished by it. In fact, the language of being fruitful and increasing greatly, it means to grow and flourish exceedingly, to become a force. They weren't just surviving. They were like abundantly thriving. But they're in the same land under the same ruler, given the same grain by Joseph, but there was a vast difference. One famished, the other flourished. And the difference was where they put their faith. The Egyptians put their faith in their human leaders 
and in all the provision that they could get. But in the beginning of these 14 years, Joseph had told Pharaoh all of his insight had come from God. He had said, I am putting my faith in God. And he was leading by following God. Think about this for a minute, too. What, what would the famine have looked like for all of Egypt if God had not been involved? Most likely, it would have been the death of nations. But instead, as Joseph followed God, he led with wise benevolence. And isn't it interesting that God provided through Joseph's faithfulness, not only for those who belonged to God, but even for those who didn't know God. Now, the provision was very different but it was still there because Joseph, who was living for God, allowed himself to be used by God to impact the entire community. And this is an example, I believe, of what the church should be doing today, right? We should be positioned to receive wisdom, knowledge, resources, positions of leadership, influence from God, and then use them to be a blessing. And I think as a church, just a small church in Wheeling, West Virginia, we've been so blessed to experience this. And perhaps just the most basic example for us as a, as a church right now are the projects that God's given us through Bridging the Gap. He has positioned us in our community. He's equipped us. He's provided insight into the needs, even the problems in our community. And as we've come together, he's able to not only use us and bless us as his children, his church, but he's allowing us to be a blessing to our community. It's profound. And here's what we see. When we seek God's presence... God enters that problem with his provision. I want to say that again. When we seek God's presence, he enters that problem with his provision. You know, when we find ourselves in a season of famine, it's in these times really that we often turn to our Christian community the most, right? Or this community kind of seems to surface when they know we need help or, or prayer or care. And it's in these times that we often turn to God more consistently on our own, or genuinely at least, right? And it's in these times that we can choose to live according to the famine we're in, or we can live according to the faith that we've been given. And when we choose faith, our faith grows. So as Genesis chapter 7 wraps up, we see one more significant act. And this is where it kind of shifts from the practical that we've been talking about to a little bit more theological. And so picking up in verse 28, we read this. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel, it's another name that Jacob has, to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, if I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. And that was like shaking hands back then. I'm really glad we shake hands and we don't do the thigh thing. But anyway, put your hand under my thigh. And promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they're buried. I will do as you say, Joseph says. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now, first of all, did you notice here that the author, which is Moses, the guy writing this down, has been calling Jacob, Jacob, all through verse 47. But then here at the end, Moses uses his name Israel. And this is the name that was given to Jacob by the angel of God back in Genesis 32. So Moses is shifting our focus from the famine to God's promise. 
because the promise was that God was going to make a great nation, God's nation, from this family line, and he would establish a land by that same name, and that name was Israel. And then we hear that Moses leaned on his staff, and that word leaned means to actually worship a deity, and not just worship, but like lay flat on the ground with your forehead touching the ground, and it was probably impossible for for Israel to do this. I mean, he's 147, right? But through this language, Moses wants us to see the attitude of Israel's heart. And what we're seeing is that Israel, as his life is ending, he's ending it with these tremendous blessings in this world, all under the power and protection and favor of Pharaoh and Egypt. And Israel worships not Pharaoh, not his son's leadership, not even all the provisions he's had. But Israel worships God, revealing that his faith is in God alone. In the famine, Israel chose to live according to faith, not according to the famine. And as a result, his faith flourishes in this. And now finally, in these last few verses, Israel makes his son Joseph promise that he will take Israel's body back to the land of Canaan. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, why was it so important to Israel that he asks him twice, he makes Joseph swear? And I think the answer is twofold. First, if you think about Joseph's life, Joseph has had this incredibly successful, powerful life in Egypt for about 25 years now. But as much as Joseph kind of looked like Egypt on the outside, Joseph was not an Egyptian. Joseph was a son of Israel. Joseph was a son of God's promise. We're going to read about this in coming weeks, but the effort and the ordeal and expense that Joseph had to go to to bury his dad in Canaan, it took four months. There was this huge entourage from Egypt involved. It would have certainly not only reminded Joseph, but sent this unmistakable message to everyone else that as good as things were in Egypt under Pharaoh, Pharaoh was still not their God, that all of the power and wealth and glory and blessings from God, those weren't even God, that even the best of God's provision is not the same as God's presence. The best of God's provision is not the same as God's presence. This is such a good lesson for us because it can be so easy to confuse God's blessings with God, right? I mean, how often are our prayers filled with only what we want or what we need from God? Mine are way more often than I wish they were. Especially if I'm in a season of some sort of a famine. And you know, this isn't bad. You know, God is our provider. He wants us to turn to him and share with him our needs and, and our desires. And we may live under tremendous blessing. I hope that God blesses you more than you know what to do with. Because when we're blessed in this life and we aren't the owners, but we're stewards of it, we have unbelievable opportunity to witness and to be a blessing to others. But any blessing in this life is simply that. It's a provision, a gift, a blessing. And Israel got this right, that it's not God. John Calvin said this about Israel insisting to be buried in Canaan. He said, it's a proof of great courage that none of the wealth or the pleasures of Egypt could so allure him as to prevent him from sighing for the land of Canaan. And this kind of leads to the second part of why it was such a big deal for Israel to have his body taken back to Canaan. So God had promised that one day the nation of Israel would occupy Canaan as their own, but here he is about to die with his entire family line in Egypt. 
So Israel being buried in Canaan was a proclamation that he still had faith that God would fulfill this promise one way or another. But there was more. It seems Israel was actually looking beyond Canaan to his final home in heaven. You know, when we read the Bible, we often see something in the Old Testament more fully explained in the New Testament and vice versa. For example, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we get a lot of insight into the lives we've been reading about in, the, in, in Genesis, which is the Old Testament. And in Hebrews 11, we see evidence of Israel's faith in God's promise extending beyond this world, beyond Canaan, to God's promise actually being fulfilled through heaven. So we read this in Hebrews 1, or I'm sorry, 11, 1 and 2. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then the next few verses go on to talk about Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob or Israel. And, and then in verse 13, it's explained that all these people, Israel included, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. But then listen to this. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, in Israel's case, Canaan, they would have had an opportunity to return, which he didn't. Verse 16, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared a city for them. So we're told Israel was longing for this heavenly country where God would prepare a city for him and his people. And the truth is there will be a time on earth, this, this earth where Israel lived, where we're living now, when this earth is made new, In God's physical kingdom, heaven will be on earth. It's referred to as the new Jerusalem or the holy city. In Revelation 21, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, where Israel lived, where we're living now, had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. No more famines, seasons of famines. For the old order of things has passed Away, And many believe that when this happens, the new Jerusalem, when it comes to earth, it will be where the land of Canaan once was, the land of Israel. So Israel, the man, is about to die in this foreign country out of a famine. He could have lived according to the famine and chosen to believe that God's promise had failed. It was over. But instead, Israel chooses faith, hope, and confidence in God's yet-to-be-promise. And he makes his son swear that he's going to take an action that will let the whole world know, including you and me today, here in the Ohio Valley, in 2023, all these thousands of years later. 
Israel looked at himself not only as a foreigner in Egypt, but as a foreigner on this earth. It's like his feet were here, but his heart was in heaven. And here's why this matters to us. Because when we become followers of Jesus, when we love God and proclaim Jesus not only as our Savior, but as our Lord, and we follow him, we become spiritual children of Israel. The new Jerusalem will be our home one day too. And when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know, God is building his kingdom here and now as he grows his church. He's present now in the hearts of all of his followers. And his kingdom will be complete when God establishes the holy city, the new Jerusalem, on the new earth. And when God's kingdom comes in all its fullness, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much that you reveal yourself to us through your word. I thank you so much that you have captured the life of Joseph and Israel and so many others um, so that we can learn, God, how to live very practically and how to live very well and how to follow you in this life. And then, Lord, also how to have our eyes fixed on you and have hope of our future with you. And so, God, we pray that everything you entrust us with, everything you do in our lives, God, we would turn back to you and we would glorify you with it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gift of today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.